Macbeth by William Shakespeare, Act One. We're going to frame our study of Macbeth around the line in Act One, Scene One, fair is foul and foul is fair. Everything that takes place in this play, I want us to at least check back and review that line fair is foul and foul is fair, to see if it applies. This is everything from the way the characters are behaving to how they're interacting, as well as the decisions that they make and how they impact the progress of the story. Fair is foul and foul is fair. What is good is wrong and what is wrong is good. What are we to make of that Simple line. And when and where does it apply within the story? If it is at the heartbeat of this play, what are we to make of its impact on how we decide what is good and what is bad? And as we take that, if we take it a step farther and we look at it from the idea of the human condition, what statement is being made here? And obviously with a play like this, we, we understand the ambition is going to be a huge aspect of understanding exactly how the characters are behaving. But with that said, if this is a play where fair is foul and foul is fair, how do we embrace the chaos? What is our giant takeaway? Or how do we view what is going to transpire in this play if we have to assume that what is bad is good and what is good is bad. The witches ultimately add, we obviously are seeing the supernatural element played out. We've seen this before, for those who are familiar with Hamlet, with the Hamlet's ghost. It's not an unfamiliar aspect of Shakespeare's works. But we have to remember, if the supernatural is playing a part here, where is that supernatural power coming from? Why do the witches have that power? These are some of the questions that we will have, but we will not, we're not going to have an answer. One of the questions we also have to look at is why Macbeth? Why are the witches so focused on Macbeth? And does it speak to anything that we see or learn about Macbeth in Act 1, Scene 2, or any other stage of this play? Because Macbeth is the centerpiece, obviously, of the play. But at the same time, the witches in their focus, it has to be earned somehow. We have to believe that there isn't some sort of random selection that took place to put Macbeth in this position. And when we move from Act 1, Scene 1 to Act 1, Scene 2, we get the establishment of Macbeth's character as a violent warrior who's also a leader. And his reputation of success in battle is at the heart of who he is. So he's a good soldier. This idea of betrayal of Duncan is not rooted in his behavior beyond his violent nature on the battlefield. We don't get that sense when the captain is speaking about what he has seen. Macbeth is not being presented as someone 
who potentially could be going against Duncan. He looks like a loyal soldier carrying out the king's wishes, defending the king's honor and throne, defeating Norway and the traitor, the Thane of Caldor. One thing we have to remember is Duncan has been betrayed. And is that a sign of weakness on Duncan's behalf? Now, he's obviously stopping the rebels. But does it speak to an issue that the throne, particularly Duncan's reign, people are seeing that it's an opportunity? And is the groundwork being established that maybe Duncan, from a leadership standpoint, is not established himself or has not been established as someone who, whose leadership cannot be contested? One of the things in Act 1, Scene 2, we have to remember, and I think this speaks back to Act 1, Scene 1, is does the violent nature of Macbeth, is that anyway connected to the fair is foul, foul is fair aspect of the witches and why he ultimately is selected for whatever reason by them? Because when we get to Act 1, Scene 3, and Macbeth's first line, is so foul and fair a day I have not seen. This idea that he's never been part of a day that was so bloody and so violent and so bad as far as the actual battles go, but also it was a success. So Macbeth is already establishing himself in this line of thought where, yes, a lot of bad things have happened that were foul, but at the same time, there was a level of fairness here Fairness meaning something positive that came out of it. So the connection between the witches and what we're seeing in the establishment of Macbeth's character can't be just random. There has to be some connection between how he has behaved and his success on the battlefield and his personality and this idea of what is foul and fair has to be at the heart of how we view an established character like Macbeth. When the witches talk to Macbeth in Act 1, Scene 3, they label him the king thereafter. And it's not something that he just sort of writes off. He digs into it. He wants to know more. And when they tell Banquo that his sons will be kings, that kind of gets pushed aside. Macbeth is very much focused on learning more about what this term was. Why am I going to be the king? And when they call him the Thane of Cawdor, he doesn't understand at that point that he's going to be labeled the Thane of Cawdor. He's going to be given that title. So knowing as the, as the readers and as the viewers, as the audience members, we know that he's already been given that title since the Thane of Cawdor has already betrayed Duncan. And knowing that the Thane of Cawdor betrayed Duncan, is there something or some connection with the witches as far as that role is also connected to betrayal? Because once Macbeth is granted that position, he too strikes out against Duncan later in the play. So as the witches present this material, it's not something that Macbeth just sort of writes off. Banquo seems to. He seems to 
think that there's some sort of level of craziness going on. But when Ross confirms and he arrives and he confirms that the Thana Kaldor has been given, the title has been given to Macbeth, Macbeth starts to see what the witches have said to him in a different light. One of the things we do have to stop and think about here is what sort of evidence do the characters in Shakespeare's plays, in this case Macbeth, need to act? What is, what is enough evidence to act upon, to take action against something? We saw this in Hamlet. If you haven't read Hamlet yet, you'll see it next year. This, the entire play of Hamlet really centers around the idea of inaction and action. So when we look at Macbeth in a similar scope, how are we to, what does he need to convince himself to take action? Because the moment that the witches label him the king thereafter, he gets a little excited. He's like, ah, maybe. But once they confirm the second title is given to him, all, now it just seems like it's, it's part of his destiny. And the question that he has for himself is, well, how do I become king? And as he goes back and forth with this throughout Act 1 and Scene 1, we see the fact that he's not really willing, he doesn't want to be an active participant in himself becoming king. That's where he at first, that's his gut reaction. That we see that he doesn't want to be the one who engages in rebellion, in betrayal, in murder. Now, Lady Macbeth has different th theories and different ideas, and we'll get to her in a second. By the time we get to Act 1, Scene 4, we have to start looking at Duncan's portrayal and how he's being established in this play as well. And, and some will depend on the actor. Is Duncan a weak king? It's one of the questions we have to ask. All throughout history, kings have defeated rebellions. That's not necessarily a point of weakness or a reference point for that's a weak king. But it does seem to be that when he talks about the people around him, he seems to elevate them, which is a positive thing. He's, once, you know, he's, he's like a cheerleader type. But at the same time, there's a level of, does, is he unable to read the room? Is, is he a poor judge of character, a poor judge of people? Is he too trusting? And while we don't necessarily get those questions answered exactly through the text, we do sometimes get it through the, the body language or the portrayal by the actor. But by the time we get to Act 1, Scene 4, Macbeth starts to see this as an opportunity, particularly when Malcolm is named the heir to the throne. Duncan is trying to establish his line of kingship, of leadership, of control of Scotland. And here Macbeth sees, wait, it's right there for me clearly not respecting what Malcolm brings to the table. Macbeth now is foreseeing that this could be his. One of the questions we have to stop and ask ourselves is, is what is gained by being king? It's a frequent question that we kind of gloss over. Is, we know it's power. But at the same time, what else is going to be given? Or is power all you need? Is the control, is the power all that we need to have established? Because if not, if there's more to it, remember, we're looking at a different time period here. Particularly even when this was written, but also when this is taking place. We're looking at an era where does the king provide a better life 
for himself and the people around him. Because there's a difference between I want to be in a power position to help others versus I want to be in a power position for myself. And it, we've got no reference point to believe that Macbeth's sense of duty as a soldier for Duncan has stretched beyond that. But with this possibility of becoming king seemingly in the mix, this is not something where he's taking on this potential role of being like, I can help people. The focus is on him and him alone. Improving his lot in life, his experience, his wife's experience. And by the time we, by the, time we get to scene five with Lady Macbeth, her introduction to the play, one of the easy things to look at right away is the role of women in Shakespeare's play. We're going to look at it here in this play as well. She immediately upon getting, she gets this letter that explains the situation. And remember, we always have to reference this. Time is moving slower than you think in this play or most of these plays. Okay? So when we look at time, all right, there's certain scenes that will be back to back and literally the time jump is seamless. And then sometimes this time will be completely sped up where there will be a huge jump between one scene to the next and how much time has passed. So we have to ask ourselves as we study the play, how much time has passed? Is this just the next day, the next minute? Or is this a couple days, weeks, months later? We don't always get a great sense of that. But whether or not time is being slowed or time is being sped up, we have to make sure we take time to recognize that. So when the letter arrives, explains what is going on, he leaves out the fact that Banquo has been promised that his sons will be king, which is an interesting statement. Because if Macbeth will be king, it means that he will not produce an heir and that somehow it'll be Banquo's sons who become king. And that point gets left out. Lady Macbeth seems to start to prepare for war. She worries that Macbeth, this violent warrior, is too kind to take vengeance, not really vengeance, but take action to murder Duncan to become king. But there's so much pent-up aggression in Lady Macbeth. She immediately starts to talk about more or less deadening her senses to prepare herself to push Macbeth in many ways to use Macbeth as a weapon for her to gain more power in this society. There's not a moment of hesitation in Lady Macbeth. And you could talk about this through the light of the fact that she has had to be inactive in this society, she is not valued as a power player. She's not in a position of power herself. And the only way she'll become powerful is through her husband. And as someone who has to be on the sidelines, who isn't present in the same way the men of this play are, she immediately becomes the puppet master pulling the strings and manipulating Macbeth to be the weapon to gain her the success that she wants. There's no hesitation. She sees this all very clearly as an opportunity for Macbeth. And there, there's aggression there. It seems almost pent-up aggression. 
that she would do this herself. And she says she will, actually. But her status in the society doesn't allow her to reach the heights that she wants to reach. But she has to go through her husband. Scenes six and seven are both very interesting. Duncan arrives at Macbeth's estate. Macbeth's not there to greet him. Instead, it's Lady Macbeth. And Duncan talks about how comforting the home is. Okay, and we have to assume it's a castle. And it, it's very odd to see how Duncan doesn't read the environment very well. He's not on edge. He just defeated a rebellion. And yes, Macbeth is one of his best leaders, trusted associates. But the fact that we immediately know that Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are considering the murder of Duncan and subsequently the other members of his family, we have to understand the fact that either Lady Macbeth is able to present herself and her home in a way that allows people to put their guard down, and that's part of her ability, that weakening of people's defenses? Or is Duncan just unable to read the room, unable to feel the danger or the circumstances that he's constantly living in? When we get to scene seven, and we get a clear soliloquy from Macbeth, and without reading the entire thing, we'll read it in class. Obviously, we'll go over it. I want us to make sure that there's a couple points that are really, really important. One, it seems like Macbeth wants to be king, but doesn't want to murder Duncan in, in, on one hand because it could set off a chain of events where he murders Duncan, someone murders him, and it's just a cycle of murder. And as we think about that, that quote about plaguing the inventor on line 10, this fact that this could be something that sets off a chain of events that does not lend himself to be king for very long. But if there was some way to murder Duncan and not have the consequences come back on him, in that way he would be down with Duncan being removed. He calls Duncan meek, almost implying that he's not, it's not a, it's not a worthy kill. Which, once again, we have to look at his speech through the, the scope of fair is foul and foul is fair. What is the right thing to do? When is murder a good option? And Lady Macbeth as Mac, comes to Macbeth and Macbeth is like, I'm not into this. And she presses him. Are you going to dare to be great? You need to Take what is yours. You cannot let this pass. And she has some incredible vivid imagery about what she would do if put in the position that he's in. 
And then she outlines the plan. Everybody would get drunk and they would frame the guards. They'd kill Duncan and Malcolm with the swords or daggers of the guards and they'd leave the guards drunkenly outside with the blood on their swords and they'd frame them. And it is only at that point where Duncan feels like there is a way to frame the guards to avoid any sort of repercussions directly at him that he says that he'll be down and he accepts Lady Macbeth's plot and plan. There's a lot to make of his soliloquy because ultimately we have to assume that if he was not truly interested in becoming king, he wouldn't be so easily convinced by his wife's plan. At the heart of this, we need to look at ambition. And does our behavior change as opportunities arise? It's very easy to say that we feel a certain way about a position that we might could hypothetically find ourselves in, but then once we're actually in it and the hypothetical aspect is taken away and we're actually in that position, maybe we act differently than we thought we would. It's very easy to do the right thing in hypothetical situations. It's very easy to say that we wouldn't take advantage of a situation or of someone or in a lot of ways work into a scenario that is it increases the quality of our existence in some way, shape, or form. And it's very easy to say, no, I, I would never do something like that. In the moment when it's action, the hypothetical option is taken away, and it's a true test of character, that is when we really learn about who a person is. So when we analyze Macbeth, and we obviously are going to look at the phrase, fair is foul and foul is fair. When he's able to talk about Duncan abstractly, he does not want to murder Duncan. He wants to sit this out and become a king basically organically. But Lady Macbeth doesn't believe that that is even possible. You have to take in order to be granted something. And in this case, she comes up with this plan that allows Macbeth to potentially get away with it and assume the throne without the blood of Duncan on his hands publicly. As we study this play, let's not forget just a simple little Kurt Vonnegut quote from another text. Let's not forget that what a person pretends to be outwardly and I'm paraphrasing, is who they, who they are. And no matter who they are internally, it's how we present ourselves publicly as ultimately what we will turn into. So all the back and forth that we get between Macbeth internally truly doesn't matter because when push comes to shove, he's the one who agrees with Lady Macbeth to execute and murder Duncan to take the power. This play has got a lot of depth to it. It's got a lot of action. It's got a lot of purpose and meaning. Let's continue to frame up our entire discussion around the, the line, fair is foul and foul is fair. It's not always going to apply. But as the story goes on, 
when is good being presented as bad and when is bad being presented as good? And if this is a play about ambition, it's also a play about being put in a situation where hypothetically we might have said, oh, you know, we would never do such a thing. So when you are actually into a scenario and you find yourself in a scenario that is truly difficult, but you have to make that decision, where is your morals? What, where, where are your standards? What is actually right and wrong to you when you have this opportunity in front of you, regardless of what it is? And we can come up with really basic ones in class. It doesn't have to be murder. There are incredibly scaled back versions of this exact predicament that you find yourself in all the time, particularly out of school, things like cheating. So as we study this play, let's continue to analyze that. Let's continue to, to focus on how Macbeth presents himself publicly versus how he is feeling internally. The role of Lady Macbeth as it expands and whether or not she is an equal to Macbeth, her husband, or is she the stronger of the two in theory? And Macbeth is truly her secondary? Or is it more complicated than that? As Macbeth changes over the play, let's continue to look at how he evolves. And let's not forget, let's look at the root of how he evolves. Who is behind it? How much is it is him? And how much is it him being influenced by outside forces? But also the third caveat, how much are the outside forces just confirming and allowing Macbeth to be who he wants to be deep down? The play's got a lot of depth, as I said. We're going to continue to work on it. And I really hope that you enjoy the play over the next couple of weeks. And we'll be going through it act by act.